Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the second episode in our new series linked to our vows issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with theologian John Milbank and with Tom and Sue Quinta, a couple from the Bruderhof. John Milbank is an English Anglican theologian and is an emeritus professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, where he's president of the Center of Theology and Philosophy. Welcome, John. Can you talk about the the recent open letter that you published um, in the European Conservative magazine and what the occasion for that was? Um, yes, well, it was a, a occasioned by a statement of um, national conservative principles. Um, this was um, coming from people who would uh, describe themselves as post-liberal. And a number of us on both sides of the Atlantic who would also describe ourselves as post-liberal, nonetheless felt um, a little bit dismayed by some of the things in, in this statement. I think primarily the, the notion that post-liberalism is about um, a battle between liberal globalization on the one hand and the, the nation state, the, the sovereign nation state, on the other, uh, and, and that's accompanied um, in this statement by a seeming denigration um, of all universal principles. So our objection to this is that um, liberal principles aren't the only universal principles. And it would seem as if um, all the great world religions um, and particularly Christianity, and these were a lot of them Christian signatories, you know, makes very, very strong universal claims. And not only that, but, you know, right from the outset of the New Testament, those claims, those allegiances, um, those vows, if you like, are seen as clearly, you know, overriding um, any kind of ethnic or national allegiances. You know, nothing could be clearer you know in one sense christianity is stoic cosmopolitanism made concrete if you like and truly including um everybody and uh, you, you know to displace that with a cult a sort of pluralist and relativist cult of the the nation state seems you know in danger of repeating errors that some Christians made earlier in the 20th century. And on top of that, it doesn't seem to us to be very post-liberal or very conservative with a small c in, in the sense that, you know, the nation state, if you like, is the individual will writ large, the nation state often destroyed intermediate institutions, the nation state has been a big promoter of, um, you know, globalizing forces. To play the devil's advocate, I think one of the things that they would probably say in response is what you're proposing sounds like grace destroying nature rather than rather than grace perfecting nature. So what is the role of um, local loyalties and kind of strong local 
cultures in a more universalist um well perhaps not accidentally all, all the signatories to that letter utterly reject any neo-scholastic notion of pure nature as quite simply sub-christian a huge misunderstanding and a vehicle for the revival of secular modernity so um if if you mean that nature is already uh encountering grace already leads to grace then absolutely i agree and that that you know grace doesn't destroy nature in the sense that it doesn't destroy our human particularities um our um you know our different cultures our different languages um regional identities to ex an extent also uh, our, our national uh, identities but the, there is a no sense in which these can simply be celebrated um as self-contained or as kind of supposedly natural ends in themselves you know everything is is transfigured by grace and I, I you know i completely agree we're not talking about uh, an uprooting you know that the universal is incarnate and in lots of different ways you know but yeah so 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 i uh, i i i wouldn't at all say that we're we're wanting to um destroy nature in in any way but i i just think that um you always have to have an onlook to something more universal otherwise you're not really competing uh, committed to a peaceful coexistence with your fellow human being well john you've written a very eloquent piece about england for us mm -hmm. uh where it amply comes to expression that you're not a, a completely rootless cosmopolitan <laughs> yourself. no, no. And, and everybody should be love where they come from and be patriotic in in the proper sense i i think um but i don't think that you know the boundaries of ethnos or language always necessarily need to coincide with political boundaries you know sometimes they do and um sometimes they don't and uh I think in my own case, I feel that my identity is quite plural. You know, I was, uh, my my dad was um, English and I was brought up in England, um, but my mother was Scottish. And uh, I feel strong ties to Europe. And then in another sense, you know, whenever I go to the Anglosphere, to the United States, Canada, or Australia, I feel I belong to that as well you know and uh i think those overlapping identities are are a good thing you know and that and maybe that's what mediates to an extent between the local identity and and something um universal but uh, you know that the christian sense of the universal is not something simply formal it has a very strong content you know both metaphysically and ethically you know so that's why the church itself sees itself as a society indeed um as a polity and as an international uh polity 
um, and, and especially if you're a Catholic, you, 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 you ought to be able to see that and to, to stress that. I think that that was my impression was that that is essentially the reason that a lot of the um, integralists, our, our sort of integralist friends, declined to sign the NatCon statement, that it seemed to them to be um, sort of giving too much ground to the particular and not sort of uh, not sort of allowing for the claims, the universal claims of both Christ and of the church. Yeah. Well, that, that, this is where things get interestingly complex, isn't it? And, you know, there are, there are several different groups because, uh, you know, we would worry that the integralists um, construe integration too much in terms of sort of clerical, theocratic control. And that paradoxically, they do still distinguish nature and grace too much. And construe the you know the the finality of grace too much in sort of power terms if you like rather than authority terms rather than the idea that um, the, the authority of of of, of um, grace which infuses everything is is a spiritual authority and you know there are no clear boundaries between um, the secular and the sacred and uh, to some extent, the secular is the sacred is um, emergent, and uh, it, it's very important to see spiritual authority um, as as one of charity, that the something that's persuasive, um, which doesn't mean that it shouldn't interfuse everything and transform everything. I mean, if you pushed me, that I would say there's a sense which I'm more integralist than the integralist. <laughs> more post-liberal than the post-liberals. Well, fortunately, we don't need to be either integralists or uh, definitely not theocratic integralists to kind of look back to the roots of Christianity and its uh, universalist claims, that the idea that you know, our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God before to any of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, of course, the early Christians spoke eloquently of, of, of that. Uh, and from a, you know, Anabaptist point of view, speaking as one, um, I've joked sometimes that Anabaptism is a sort of uh, nonviolent integralism sometimes. But the point being that th th there are loyalties yeah. higher than our national loyalties um, and that was yeah. my major negative reaction to the National Conservative Statement, particularly the part on immigration, which just, as you pointed out in the open letter, which, you know, you and yeah. signed, uh, just doesn't seem to reflect very Christian virtues like charity. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully understand that, you know, immigration can be exploitative of the people already there and the people coming in, and it's often you know, uh, allowed for, uh, you know, not, not very impressive. Sure, it's a complicated, it's a complicated policy issue, no doubt. At the same time, I'm very, very worried about any tendency to sort of um, understand being American uh, uh, as in the end being white or even European. Um, and uh, I, 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 you know, you know, speaking from a, a British perspective, I think it's more and more evident that Britishness is nothing to do 
um, with race, and, and you know that that's a good thing. It's 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 a cultural thing, and it reflects, you know, uh, it, its previous global presence. You know, however you want to see bad as well as good in that, that 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 is that is um, if you like a reality. And um, so, you know, one of the things I would uh, call into question would be in that document, this sort of rather automatic and perhaps American preference for the nation state over any mode of empire. Sometimes empires have been more pluralist in terms of, you know, tolerating different religions and different ethnicities and 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 so on. And you know, they, the you know the record of nations as in, encouraging exclusivism and oppression of minorities is not very very good. I mean, it doesn't mean that everything about empires is wonderful, but it it it, it just seems to me too simplistic. And there's a de real danger of a sort of American hypocrisy here, you know, pretending that they're kind of born out of anti-imperialism, where really, you know, they're, they're involved almost from the outset in their own mode of imperialism, and sometimes a very irresponsible kind of um, economic imperialism. And I think, you know, again, looking at it from a Catholic point of view, that at least, you know, up to early modernity, there was a sense that the natural law is mediated, first of all, through the law of nations or the jus gentium. In other words, that actually international law and Christendom come first, you know, even if we're not talking about the church, if we're, if we're talking about um, the community of secular law, there's a priority to international law. And that really only gets reversed by the Spanish scholastics in early modernity. And basically, you could argue they're baptizing the emergence of the nation state that comes at the end of Christendom. But I would say that most continental Catholic thought has become very worried about those developments and prefers to return to the, the, the more international vision of Augustine and, and, and Thomas Aquinas, you know, for which, um, you know, you, you insert your own national legality and self-understanding within um, a broader, as it was in those days, European community. And actually, if you look at Edmund Burke, you know, who's so often seen as the archetypal conservative, he still thinks the same thing, that a sort of shared sense of European legality uh, and um, certain normativity rooted in Roman law and to ex an extent, you know, German and common law, that, that kind of comes first um, um, over your, over your national self-determination. In other words, you know, there's a real danger of ignoring the priority of the civilizational here. Um, and, and this is ironic because we live in reality in, the, in a world of big civilization states today. You know, uh, it's just a myth to think that the Westphalian order of, you know, independently contracting nation states is coming back. On the contrary, um, we have big, we have Russia, we have America, we have China, you know, we've got emerging India, maybe Brazil and so on. And, you know, the, the, the European nations, apart from Britain that has lost its marbles for the moment, realizes that it, it has to hang together 
in the face of these big civilization states. You know, it's it's not going to be able to hang on to its own self-determination and identity just as a collection of separated small nation states, you know? There's a sense in which, you know, because the US actually isn't um, a single ethnicity, you know, the danger that uh, it sees itself as a white ethnicity and then as also Protestant and construes Catholicism and even Judaism in in quasi-Protestant terms, I think is 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 very strong. I do think there is a is a real danger that the nation state becomes intolerant. I mean, if you look at in the case of France, you know, um, yeah, the rights of man and citizen, and that is sort of being a French citizen. And what does that mean? And then that becomes laicity, and you get a kind of civil religion. And France does seem to have consistent problems with its sort of religious minorities, um, if you like, partly because of there is that sort of lurking ethnic thing, whereas Britain, although, you know, has established Christianity and so forth, um, perhaps because um, it is even internally an imperium with several different nations and supposedly bound together by uh, a set of values and attitudes um, seems to have been quite or relatively more successful at, at tolerating, you know, um, or even given giving a strong civic role to, you know, other religious groups. I think, and and I think that's very much bound up with the fact that it's it it is not in a way an ordinary nation state you know another thing that we objected to in the conservative natcom thing you know along with this sort of automatic praise of the american constitution as if it was obviously the best and but but also this assumption of a, a capitalist order you know that again we we would not agree with and i i think to the contrary that the more this Christian communitarian order that you saw post-war in the US and in the and in Europe in various different ways and in Britain, the more that kind of eroded through the 60s and the 70s um, in favor of a you know naked individualism, the more things actually you know started to fall apart. And I think that process is continuing and in our own day has become absolutely terrifying. Um, and, and once more, um, a very extreme liberalism is inviting this uh, authoritarian um, reaction, reaction against it. So, you know, I want Christians once again to articulate... Um, a mediating vision here and I felt that the the NatCon document really it does so in some ways but in other ways it's very inadequate um, especially as we've said you know how little it talks about friendship and charity. I kind of want to speak up on behalf of the NatCons if, just in the sense that I do think that they are trying to address um, you know they're they're trying to address the the technocratic and sort of materialist and heartless um, sort of European vision, which is not like a true European vision, but but is this kind of like 
zombified Europe um, that the EU, I think, is actually kind of embodying, although it doesn't need to. And we sh- and I think that the point of your of, of the statement of the open letter, rather, is to say that the that we shouldn't give up on the concept of internationalism just because the current international order does kind of look like a boring, you know, Brussels zombie. Like the, the actually existing Brussels zombie does not negate the concept of international friendship um, as, as a thing or the concept of natural law that, that, you know, that can be embodied in international law um, in a, in a Grotian sense. John, I'd like to um, change the subject in a way that actually circles back to something that you were saying earlier about the role of uh, Christian communitarian thought um, after immediately after World War II. What would it look like to rebuild that kind of communitarian Christian sense? Um, and I guess... A little background here um, in kind of thinking about this issue, we looked at all kinds of ways in which a very individualist mindset has eroded, you know, cultural forms of commitment, be that marriage, be that monasticism, or even military service, which involves um, a a commitment of self to to something higher. People don't want to have their options shut in Christian communitarianism is kind of the or communitarian Christianity is really the opposite of that I I just love to hear your thoughts on is there a way forward to call that kind of way of thinking way of living back into being I think that um, it's a matter of um, identifying and counteracting um, loneliness you know, and and I suppose um, you know there are probably two answers. Um, you know, the the first is um, what we need is a you know recovery of Christian self confidence, which means you know believing what we really believe, believing that the Christian outlook um, you know seriously explains reality and points you towards. Um, the, the right way to live um, and and then people have to have to live that out and uh, I very much like these Italian and Spanish sort of Catholic lay movements where people sort of do jobs but take vows you know and um, there are communities of businessmen operating under sort of certain Christian norms and this kind of thing. Uh, I I think all that's invaluable. I mean, I suppose the other issue that I'd want to confront is the way, um, you know, often um, it's, it's, it's market capitalism that has, you know, deracinated and isolated people. And then the state has had to step, step in to protect them well, I have to say, I do like the idea of a kind of renewal of vowed guilds and tertiary orders and lay orders of businessmen. And I I kept thinking about the sort of the Opus Dei option as an alternative. But it's not just Opus Dei. I mean, John, meant, you know, there's Focolare, there's yeah, the Santa Gidea yeah. movements, there's the... Communion Liberation. Yeah, I know people in all these groups and uh, yeah, yeah. I find them, I find them very admirable. 
and uh, there's something about Italy that is weirdly kind of, I don't know, almost pre-modern even to this day. There's a certain fluidity between the social, the economic and the political, you know, um, and a sort of interpersonal way of doing it, things, you know. It's the good side of the mafia. (laughs) But the role of education, as you're saying, of of that, that, you know, what struck one of the many things that struck me in what you just said, John, is that Christianity in the future is going to have to be much more focused on formation and education than it was. And that that has to be tied with an emphasis on vocations that are not driven by money. Um. That, that seems like a really great place to start. Yeah. We have to recover the patristic idea that Christianity was a reform movement in the sense of reforming, you know. Well, I think that's both a good place to start and a good place to end. That's sort of a, a sort of statement of intent and a statement of purpose. And I, I, I feel like that's uh, not a bad place to, um, to both start and end on. Bye. And now, welcome to Tom and Sue Quinta, a couple who've been members of the Bruderhof, the community which publishes Plough, for many decades now. Welcome, Tom and Sue. Who, who are you and what is your story? And I, I guess that's kind of the kind of big macro question. But um, We've been talking about vows and making yeah. vows. And um, you obviously both have made vows to a particular way of Christian community. So right. I'll start with me. I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. My parents were both immigrants from Italy. And I grew up in in a rougher part of Washington, D.C. And got involved with, uh, you could hardly avoid it, but uh, law-breaking and fighting and lots of other things of that kind. And I had a conscience when I was young. I, I knew what, uh, what I was doing was wrong, but somehow I had to step on that as a teenager mm-hmm. and uh, basically just left my conscience behind mm-hmm. and was able to do most any ugly, th- ugly thing that came along. Um, so uh, I didn't do well in school and eventually I was uh, kicked out of high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I was eligible to be drafted in those days. The draft was still active. So I contacted the draft board and asked them when they thought they might take me. So I went through basic training and then I had uh, advanced training in how to drive a tank and uh, how to fire a tank gun. So I ended up at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And while there, uh, one of the other men in the barracks was an avid reader. And a lot of the men at that time were in the army after they finished their like college. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I think it's less so. You have more a volunteer basis, so you get a lot of different kind of people. Anyway, he always had an interesting book lying on his bunk, and I began to pick up the book and look at it. And of course, I hadn't read very much, and I hadn't paid much attention in school, so everything I read 
I couldn't quite understand the names that were being referred to, or the ideas. Aristotle, Plato. Plato, yeah, all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> well, on the uh, military post, there was a store, and they had paperback mentor, paperback books were all 50 cents each. And uh, they had everything, the complete works of Plato. And so every time I came across something I didn't know about, I went and bought a paperback and read it. So basically, I kind of educated myself during my time in the Army. <clears throat> the other thing that came very clear to me was that the military is training how to kill people, and how to destroy. And I decided that that's something I did not want to do with my life, and that I would never go back into the military no matter what they did to me. And I began to feel that, not entirely, but the military basically is kind of like a hit squad to protect the interests of the power and money elite uh, of the world. And the wars and things like that are often because of threats to people's status or money. So I finished my two years active duty and uh, came back to Washington, D.C. and decided that um, I needed to actually finish high school one way or the other and uh, go to college. So I took the GED and because I think I did a lot of reading uh, in the Army, I did a pretty good grade. And I had decided by that time <clears throat> to study psychology and become a psychotherapist. And uh, I also worked very hard uh, at the university where I was and had very high grades and <clears throat> graduated Phi Beta Kappa, for instance. But in my last, my senior year, uh, I was offered a research psychologist fellowship at the University Psychological Clinic. So I had an office and I had an opportunity to see students and staff members who are having emotional problems or behavioral problems or all kinds of other problems. And uh, so I spent my last year working in the clinic. And what I noticed was that one could, uh, in talking, and have a verbal understanding of why a person would fall into certain emotional trap or certain relationships. But then circumstances would arise again for them and they would fall into the same trap. So I was trying to understand how to help people um, deepen their recognition so they can really, really be changed at a deep level. And you didn't know about repentance? And... No, I didn't know about repentance, which would have helped a lot with some. What was your background with Christianity? Oh, oh I can go back to that. Um, my parents were Roman Catholics, having been from Italy, but it was cultural more than anything else. And I did I go to church with them when I was younger, but um, really couldn't relate much with it. It was in Latin, and um, there was a lot of uh, talk about the Holy Ghost and the things like that, which didn't make any sense to me at the time. 
So basically, by the time I was 12 or 13, I refused to go to church mm -hmm. and uh, rejected the whole business and became a very active atheist. Mm -hmm. However, um, you know, when working with, you know, with people and, uh, you know, like, and try to understand what actually is mental health, mm -hmm. uh, now is it being able to hold a job, make money and buy stuff? Is that what people really need in their lives? Or is it something deeper? Mm -hmm. And I came to realize that it's actually the ability to give and receive love that's fundamental to mental health and to all of life. Mm -hmm. Well, I got interested in Eastern also religions and thought, and I had the idea to go to India to see if there was some ancient uh, mental practice that would help deepen psychological recognitions. And I, I had decided to do that when I graduated. Why don't we go back to your background and just your, your story. Okay. Um, I was born in 1945. I was the first child. They took me to a public school and they took me to a Catholic school mm -hmm. and let me choose mm -hmm. at age five. Wow. And I chose the Catholic school. Now, my parents were non-religious in a certain sense. My dad was raised Christian scientist. Mm -hmm. My mom was... Um, Anglican, race cool. Anglican, and so they decided not to approach the subject of religion, but quote, let the children decide, which is, yeah. Anyway, I learned to read and write, um, copying out the Psalms, and I accompanied my classmates to Mass. Of course, I didn't take communion myself, but I was very um, struck about it the whole thing and from that time on I was seeking something there was something there that that I wanted so we moved from then to um, Illinois and then to California and Virginia and Hawaii and back to Virginia but all the time I was um, kind of had my radar out to find out how I could find out more about Jesus how I could find this relationship and when I was 10, we lived in Long Beach, California, and I went by myself to church. It was only two blocks away from us. And I went to the service, and I went to Sunday school. And one day, one Sunday in the service, I was just absolutely overwhelmed by a sense that Jesus was there with me. And I wept and wept. Who knows? I just was very, very moved. And my... Sunday school teacher and my minister brought me home and asked if I could be baptized. Well, my parents were a bit um, surprised, but um, they said, we think she's too young. I was only 10. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was 12, when I would have been old enough, we, we had moved. But that seeking kept mm -hmm. on. And um, incidentally, when I was in the community and preparing for baptism in in uh, in this life. I talked to Heine Arnold, and he responded about that. As the senior pastor of the Bruderhof. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. exactly. He said, um, "We have no idea how much little children can take in mm -hmm. about Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, we underestimate it, basically, mm -hmm. is what he was saying." And um, yeah. He said he also had an experience like that when he was 10 mm -hmm. of Jesus' presence, and, and it was a steering 
um, experience for his life. So anyway, um, I went to high school and then I went to Purdue my first year, but it was very engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I transferred to George Washington University where I met that guy. Yeah. I was taking, I was tentatively moving toward pre-med. And so I was taking calculus and I'm very dumb at calculus. So I saw my calculus teacher in the student union talking to a young man, very nice looking young man, um, called Tom. And uh, I went up and asked him my question about the problem he had assigned. And apparently my future husband noticed me and the next day on campus I saw him out of the corner of my eye but I didn't want to act like I really saw him so I kind of turned up my nose and he came over and said what's the matter with you do you have a bucket on your head <laughs> I mean what a, what a line you know what a first line and so I started laughing my romantic Italian background so I started laughing and we started talking and it turned out we both had a lot of common interests, common questions mm -hmm. about life. And so after that, I, I veered toward finishing up in the things that kind of very much interested me, philosophy and anthropology, because mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I'm not gonna be a good doctor and a good wife. You can't do both, mm -hmm. at least not out there at that time. Mm -hmm. So I finished up in philosophy and Tom finished up in psychology. So that's, that's how we met. And then, because Tom already explained how he wanted to go to India to delve into these ancient cultures and find out what they had to add to our understanding, we went on a boat. Yeah, on a freighter. On a freighter, yes. That was Ten the cheapest possible, cheapest possible passage that we oh, could find. Oh, it was just bliss. Yeah. <laughs> I took the Tolkien trilogy oh. and read it for the first time. This was 66, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was basically incommunicado for a, few, a couple the days. The Don't tell me anything. <laughs> I, I have to finish this page. Honestly, The Lord of the Rings on a freighter to India in 1966 is sort of peak hippie. Yes. That's like, yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was it was just great. <clears throat> so anyway, we took a freighter and... Uh, I had a wonderful Took a trip. month. <laughs> lots of storms and lots of excitement. But we uh, landed in Bombay, and uh, after our intestines settled down a bit from lots of different influences, Onslaught. we uh, decided, well, I decided to, we, to go to Bombay University to the psychology department and uh, talk with the professor and explain what my interest was. And he said that he had a student working on a master's degree at a yoga college at a place called Lunal up in the hills. And uh, he might be somebody we want to talk to. So we took this wild trip up to this. Uh, 100 miles on a rickety old bus. <laughs> oh, gosh. To this, With the chickens. To this yoga college. And uh, first we had a tour, and there was a class of students who were practicing alternate nostril breathing. We had a whole classroom full of these people doing 
up in one nostril, out the other. But the student um, that we uh, went to see was doing research on the application of yogic uh, breath sensitivity and control for managing acute asthma attacks. Mm -hmm. And he had his copy of his master's thesis there and wanted uh, me to look at it. So I, I looked it over and then I uh, looked at the back at the references and uh, wrote down any books and references that um, would be of interest in the future. So we, we traveled around India. We went to the All India Institute of Mental Health and places like that to follow this interest that I had. And uh, then we came back on a freighter, landed in New York and came back to Washington. So we went to the Library of Congress to look up some of the um, references that we picked up in different places. And um, one book that especially caught my eye by a Harvard sociologist named Petiram Sorokin. And the title of the book was The Ways and Power of Love. And he had formed an institute for creative, what he called creative altruism at Harvard University. So in this book, there were uh, sections like on the American Good Neighbor, it used to be at least when I was a young person in the city, if someone on your block got sick, your neighbors would come and take your garbage out and things like that. Bring casseroles. And then there was another chapter on brotherly communities, and the Franciscans were described. And then a group called the Society of Brothers was described. And uh, it was very uh, appealing to us because we were coming around to thinking that actually we don't really want to kind of join the middle-class rat race, two cars in the suburbs and all that stuff, but find something like a family monastery, a place where you could have a, a committed life and have a family. And uh, so we went back to the Library of Congress and looked through the card catalogs and searched around. We were actually able to find um, plow magazines from way back, some of the early plow magazines. And we were able to piece together a story of a group that started around 1920 in Germany and uh, ran into conflict with the Nazi state and that some of their members then immigrated to Paraguay. So we thought, aha, that's where they are in Paraguay. Of course, we know, you know they weren't actually, we found out. But <coughs> So we wrote a letter to Paraguay expressing our interest and uh, a wish to visit. And uh, a long time passed and we didn't hear anything. And we were planning to save our money and go down there and see if we could find the Society of Brothers in Paraguay, Primavera. And then we got a call from one of the brothers in New Metaron, Dick Domer, actually. In Pennsylvania. He said uh, that quite miraculously our letter had gone down to Paraguay and the Mennonites had gotten a hold of it and they forwarded it then to New Metaron. The letter was full of stamps. He's <laughs> amazed that it got to him. <laughs> well, it's a country where people take stamps off and sell them. Oh, you know. 
so anyway, he invited us to come and visit no matter run. And that was in 1967. So we came to New Run for a weekend, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just were very, very impressed by the quality of life, the way the children were cared for, the gardens, bright colors in the houses, which we don't have anymore. <laughs> uh, but no, no, just the simple life, uh, you know, the, the sisters were very natural looking and simple and uh, it was just a very joyful life. And it looked kind of like something we might want to be a part of. So we asked if we could come back for a, an open-ended stay. So then we came back in mid-October that year and stayed through March the next year. <clears throat> and took part in everything. I was the teacher for the oneies, mm-hmm. the one-year-olds, and um, now those those children I had in that group have grandchildren and great grandchildren. <laughs> it's just amazing. But it was just we were completely accepted, completely a part of everything, and um, we felt very much at home. But we could not ultimately say that Jesus Christ was our only Savior. We were, um, I would say, uh, too intellectual about the whole Very thing. Very eclectic. We yeah, had a kind of an alphabet soup philosophy. So it was suggested to us that we should continue to seek and um, come back when, when we were more sure of what, what we wanted. So that was hard for us and it was hard for them. But it was the right thing. And we went away. I took a job with a juvenile court. But what I began to realize was that anyway, any kind of psychological treatment um, is sort of a band-aid because there's so much wrong in our culture. There's so much wrong in families. And uh, that actually what we needed was an entirely new way of life. And that was one of the main triggers for me to look more seriously also at the Bruderhof, that it's good to help people as a therapist or as a social worker or whatever else, but there's so much you just can't fix. And, uh, but meanwhile, we went down the Zen Buddhist path for a while. We went, we started sitting in a, in a group, um, and then we moved to Maine with our first daughter, built a house there, and we definitely gave it the works. We mm-hmm. tried. Um, it, the hours of meditation were 4 to 6.30 in the morning and 6.30 to 9 at night, and in between was hard work out in the woods or wherever. I, I baked bread for a local health food store and then we had our second child, Maria. Our, and Our colleague at Lao, <laughs> managing editor. Yes, right, right. And um, I was able to participate less in the actual sitting. Um, our idea in being at the, at the Zen group was just to quiet the mind and let God speak, basically. 
That's, that was our, our longing. Um, it wasn't a um, devotional practice. Mm -hmm. We weren't worshiping Buddha. We never thought of doing that. But we just gave it the works, uh, sitting quietly and doing that discipline. And um, it, it definitely clarified a lot of things for us. But as the children were growing, um, I was able to participate less so that Tom would come home all blissed out and, and I would be tearing my hair because the kids were teething and so on. Well, so that <clears throat> created a, a we, tension. We were living uh, a 1960s uh, plus simple life. Mm. <clears throat> and when you live a simple life, the woman does all the work. Mm -hmm. Amen. <laughs> she had to split wood to put in the wood stove to cook. Yep. Washed diapers by hands and hang them in the living room when it was oh raining outside. It was and simple. It was so simple. And when you took them outside in the winter, had you ever been clobbered by a freeze-dried diaper? I mean, it's infuriating. <laughs> the point we're getting at was that, uh, you know, the peace that we were seeking, the, you know, the growth and compassion and love and clarity that we were seeking, was being jeopardized because of this situation where... And also in that community, there was really not a, a basis there for, were, yeah, there were, for um, the it, kind of unity that we were... Yeah, there were all, kinds of, all kinds of characters. Yeah, all kinds of characters. Some we could get along. Also part of it was our, our children were getting to be school-aged, and uh, Annika was going to first grade in a very small village, and uh, she was telling her sister Maria, uh, we're to hide in the bushes at re recess because it was so scary the way the other kids behaved. Yeah, and uh, that really, you know, made me. And the think. teacher used television in the classroom, <clears throat> yeah. and we never had television ever. So anyway, uh, we were thinking maybe let's have another look at the Bruderhof, and we had a couple of books that um, were given to us: so Love and Marriage in the Spirit and Children's Community, which we kept. And uh, <clears throat> earlier, when I looked at Bruderhof literature, there was quite a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, and then it kind of harked back to my childhood as in going to church and hearing about the Holy Ghost and not knowing what on earth people are talking about. But in looking again at the plow books that we had, it all of a sudden struck me that the Holy Spirit, that's that voice that's been calling you. How did you, is that Ever the since way? you were a small yeah. child yeah. and you stepped on it. Yeah. Uh, so I then uh, <clears throat> became quite clear to me that that actually was the Holy Spirit speaking inside of me. And not only that, I had to also admit to myself that it was Christ's Spirit. And that for me was, uh, made it possible then to go back to the brood of hope and seek um, this this life in that way. I was just I was just wondering you would when you were thinking about um, the practice that, that you were the, the meditation practice that you were doing and like the way that you thought of it was listening for God's voice is how did you think of God then was it was it a sort well, of that was your word yeah yeah is, how, I mean <clears throat> I still had this center that of seeking mm -hmm. for this this god presence that mm -hmm. i 
I knew from mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. And um, I just felt that by, by becoming still, mm -hmm. completely still, um, it would manifest itself mm -hmm. in my heart. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, um, <clears throat> there's a word um, that comes from, from, the, from India, a Sanskrit word, chitta. And chitta refers to, you might call it the uh, texture of your mind. And the practice of meditation there and, and meditative kind of yoga, the point of it is to quiet your inner life so that the chitta becomes clear like a surface of water and reflects reality as it is. Uh, without all of the concepts and stuff that you sort of accumulate from your culture and your background. And that's how I viewed it as a chance to apprehend what actually is reality yeah. and then live yeah. by it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that the many thousands of hours of, of meditation um, certainly made it possible for me to recognize this small voice inside. Mm -hmm and to give it a name. Mm -hmm. We had written to Woodcrest and got an answer from Johann Christoph Arnold inviting us. And um, so we arrived on Easter Monday and walked, uh, we drove up the drive in our car. We had not seen any of these, we, it's a completely new Bruderhof mm -hmm. to us, so we hadn't seen a building yet. And I turned to Tom and said, we're home. I just felt completely a presence, completely at home. And so we drove in, and there was Dick Domer. <laughs> we had the same car as we had when we visited nine years before. And the first thing he said was, not welcome, but you still have the same car? <laughs> <laughs> so that was Dick Domer's welcome to us in yeah. Woodcrest. And so we went up. Um, to breakfast in their house and all these children of theirs that were tiny children then were grown up and it was a wonderful a experience, a so witness. fresh, yeah. so um, joyful. It was a beautiful spring day with the sun shining coming through the windows. Yeah, wonderful. We sang um, White Clouds, which is one of the Easter songs and whenever we're on the hoof with one of the domers, we look at each other across the circle at, at Easter time and somebody suggests white clouds because that was just so after, amazing. <clears throat> after three days, we asked if we could talk with Heine uh, Arnold, you know, the, the grandfather of these young men, Heine Arnold, who was the elder at the time. And uh, he was a large man with a very warm smile and eyes, as they know, and kind of a big white beard. And to us, as a, from the outside world, they have a, really a patriarchal feeling. And uh, so we went into his office, and uh, he leaned back in his office chair and put his hands like behind his head. And he has kind of a strong German accent, which was also new to us. And he said, so, Tom and Zoo, how is it? And then he sat there with this smile and waited for us. <laughs> the ball was in our court. 
and we said that we had <coughs> visited nine years before and um, did lots of things in between and spent the last seven years or so in the Zen practice community. But now we wanted to stay in Woodcrest and seek Jesus with everyone there. And without a hesitation, he said, all right, sell your stuff and come. <laughs> and here we are. So can you, tell, can you talk about what it looked like to take those membership vows? What was it that you promised? Well, before we took the membership vows, we knew that we had driven in a stake and we were not going to go anywhere away from those vows. Mm-hmm. We knew that. Mm-hmm. So it was not difficult to mm-hmm. say um, we want to stay here and with the brothers and sisters here follow Jesus mm-hmm. for, for all, our whole lives mm-hmm. and also promise to take admonition and give admonition if needed mm-hmm. um, it needs that because it can I mean it's a it's a always a problem when people get too cozy or too um, afraid to criticize one another mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a constructive way, mm-hmm. um, we need to be able to do that mm-hmm. to help one another along. Because um, we had a lot of ideas, and uh, people would say, you know, it wasn't hard to give up your house and your car and your property, and it was easy. That was easy. We sold everything and gave the church all the money and I put all our rest of the stuff in a U-Haul truck brought it to Woodcrest 12 chickens piano chickens, you name it wood splitter, <laughs> wood splitter but the hard thing to give up are your your ideas mm-hmm. yeah and your attitudes about things and that took, we had to work with that because we were mm-hmm. vegetarians and living simply uh, up in the woods of Maine and uh, yeah we had had to work at uh, letting go of a lot of things Giving up your ideas sounds scary. Do you want to talk about just like what you mean by that and what what it means to sort of go from that kind of... Well, um, for instance, we had pretty strong ideas about food Uh and uh, the quality of food. Uh And at that time, um, it wasn't so strong in the community Mm -hmm. and uh, children were given a lot of sweet stuff, Mm -hmm. which we would never give to our children. Mm -hmm. That was one kind of thing. Um, we believed in organic farming, mm-hmm. and that wasn't being done yet. Mm-hmm. I think it's grown over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, those sorts of things mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. The thing is, you have to maintain a focus on the greater good. Mm-hmm. And for us, it was important that we just stick with the 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 basis Mm -hmm. and what we've noticed over the years is that because this life is not an organization Mm -hmm. it is an organism Mm -hmm. it grows it Mm -hmm. changes it makes mistakes it it turns around and does something Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. Um, little by little some of the things that we were strong on have also become Mm -hmm. mainstream if you will here and more important but the, the, the core has stayed the same. So that's it. In other words, it's worth giving up everything to stay united with other 
brothers and sisters uh, in following Jesus. Yeah, that's it's worth giving up everything. But being having human natures, you have to struggle to mm-hmm. give up things. Can you talk about just sort of what your thoughts are about? I mean, you you have this like eclectic kind of appreciation for both Zen Buddhism in particular, but also just the kind of generalized, you know, um, pick and mix sort of a hippie approach to all these questions of spirituality and, and um, mental health and, and positive psychology. But at the same time, you also have a, a Christian orthodoxy that like that's where all of those things led you mm-hmm. to to Christ himself as, you know, as, he, as he's understood in the Christian tradition and a kind yeah. of... Can you talk about that tension or that like what that looks like, both as you were as you were converting and also just kind of in as you understand all those things now? And how does God get to people? <laughs> how does God get to people? I think He gets to people so many different ways, mm-hmm. and um, it's important to respect those ways mm-hmm. where those are genuine. Um, Yeah, that that um... there's a quotation actually from the uh, Vedic tradition mm-hmm. in India, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this uh, that's actually from the Bhagavad Gita that Arjuna represents like a man of the earth, mm-hmm. and Krishna represents a god, mm-hmm. Godhead, God, and. They were talking, and Arjuna was making fun of some of the religious practices in India. And India's very wide range of different ways people practice their religion. And Krishna said to Arjuna, "Never show disrespect to honest devotion." And I've never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. And also, Buddhism. Um, of course, started off with a man named Buddha. He never represented himself as being a god. People have done that mm-hmm. in, in time. And his recognition was that um, desiring and grasping is the cause of suffering. That's mm-hmm. the fundamental beginning of Buddhism. And uh, it's true. Mm-hmm. The more things you want and can't get, the more unhappy mm-hmm. that you are, and the more things you do to other people to get them, and it goes on and on. So... Um, in that sense, you know, we could relate with, with Buddhism very well, but it's, it doesn't go as far as um, Jesus' teaching. It doesn't have a vector. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has the peace, but then what? Yeah. In other words, not a, there's not a God's kingdom that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, right. offered for those who seek to follow and work together. Yeah. I also think of C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, yeah. where um, the, the last scene where the different ones go through, only the mockers yeah. are the ones, who don't are the ones yeah. that are outside. Yeah. The ones that are sincere. Mm-hmm. It's not so much desire being the problem in itself as desire properly focused. And exactly. you know what Christianity says is that there is something worthwhile desiring. Right. And what Christianity does is sort of tells you all these things that you want these things this huge desire for good and for like permanence and for joy that you have it's not that that's wrong it's that you didn't know where it was but this is where it is 
And that's the treasure hidden in the field that you literally sold everything. We and sold you everything. Went and you bought it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you've been living that ever since. Right. Trying. Trying. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how those vows of your marriage vow and also the baptismal vow have shaped your lives since then? Well, we, uh, <clears throat> we knew people that had um, church weddings mm-hmm. and uh, spent a lot of money and a lot of uh, arrangements and all that. And then after two or three years, they separated. Mm-hmm. And of course, this was, again, the 1960s was a very uh, loosening up mm-hmm. period of, of ways of doing things. So I think we, we both felt that what's the point of that kind of wedding? You know, we could just walk out in the sea and hold hands and say, let's stay together forever. Mm-hmm. But um, you have to do something legal and you have to do something that your parents are happy with. So we decided to go to Florida where my parents lived and have a simple mm-hmm. civil wedding there, which we did. Mm-hmm. And but when we were baptized, we asked Heine if we could answer the marriage vows. Mm-hmm. What's it like to live with the kind of community vow that you guys have made and have that sort of be something that holds your life? It's a deep peace is what I would say. It's, you, you've got that settled. Mm-hmm. That is clear, mm-hmm. absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, that's a great gift. Mm-hmm. It's just settled. Mm-hmm. And, it's and, a bit like being born mm-hmm. and then you live until you die uh-huh. yeah i mean you know in a sense of course unless you commit suicide uh-huh. <laughs> but i mean it's it's that kind of feeling yeah. that yeah. Uh, you're on the road and you can stay on that road as long as you right. you're able to mm-hmm. um and it's, it's not, not that we haven't had our struggles as a couple sure. couples do have struggles and but the commitment holds you together mm-hmm. through the struggles yeah and also struggles with the community we mm-hmm. had to uh, go outside at different times from the community and get spend some time to get our perspective, perspective clear yeah yep. <clears throat> as many families uh, have done over the years but we knew where our home was and where we belonged and yeah. uh, made finally work through things and came back I had never thought of it quite like that because the sort of, for me, like the idea of, um, the idea of suicide being off the table was kind of the first moral idea that I had in a way, or it was like the second, because the first was, I read in a Louisa May Alcott book, in order to be happy, you have to be good. And I was like, I never thought of that before. But then the idea of like, your life is, you're here and you're given life and it's like being drafted, but in a good way. And yeah. you're not allowed to go AWOL. Yeah, right. And and so that kind of hit me really deep at some point. And I'd never quite thought of the baptismal or baptismal vows and, you know, a marriage vow as well as being like, all right, now you're you're drafted now and you're not yeah. getting out of this alive. Yeah. And it's not your decision when you're getting out of it. <laughs> That's kind of wonderful. Yeah. Well, it, it's there's a deep peace in that. Yeah. You know where you belong. Yeah. Yeah. And you know where you're going, and uh, it's. I know for those of us who brought up in a you know, topsy turvy world. Yeah. <clears throat> a long time you didn't know where you were going or yeah. where you belonged, and it's a it's a very anxiety producing and unsettling and. 
but you guys you guys also still have a kind of you have lively minds and searching intellects and this is this is not something that's not you know there's there's not a sort of end to thought no never yeah never it's it's all no we're bookaholics yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah started in the army and never stopped yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true <laughs> i think we're evidence-based though you know um mm-hmm. this life is the evidence mm-hmm. And uh, this book, Another Life is Possible, Mm -hmm. it says it so well. Mm -hmm. This is the evidence. Mm -hmm. That's a very key point. I'm glad you bring that Mm -hmm. up because that that was what made me realize that Jesus is real because Mm -hmm. look, look look at this life. Look at these people. It's real. The Bible is not just words that people mumble in church on Sundays. Not a philosophy. It's real. And uh, that struck me very much in the and early time. That's one thing about um, I have a reaction against empty philosophizing mm-hmm. because I'm like, so what does that lead to? Uh-huh. Do it. Uh-huh. You know, it has to have some some consequence. Yeah. F- otherwise, you're just. It's like this. Um, uh, anecdote about this man who went from monastery to monastery and got a few grains of rice for his Mm -hmm. bag in one monastery, a few grains in another, and a few grains in another, and then he died. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have anything Mm -hmm. because he'd never stuck to anything. And that's that's very sad. If you never dig in and actually commit to life. But what what about the sage in the cave? Oh. In the Himalayas. <laughs> That's just a joke, dear. <laughs> I want to hear the joke. Okay, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, there was this this Jewish guy from from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, he would try to find out what life was about. What's what? Because he you know he, he listened to the Torah and all these things, but you know, and someone said, well, there's a sage that lives in a cave in the Himalayas, who actually knows the secret of life. So he made this huge effort to uh, travel all the way over to India and go up to Nepal and try to find this man and ask people. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they finally showed him this this cave. And uh, he goes into this cave, and this sage is sitting there with his eyes closed. And uh, he says, oh, master, can you tell me what the purpose of life is? Sage sat there for a little while, then he opened his eyes and he said, Life is a waterfall. <laughs> and this guy said, What? You mean I came all the way over here to hear you say, Life is a waterfall? <laughs> and the sage opened his eyes very wide and said, You mean life is not a waterfall? <laughs> <laughs> I am I'm so pleased that you guys were able to do this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com. That's P-L-O-U-G-H.com. For the digital magazine, you can also subscribe. $36 per year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. 
Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council, so you can go to Plow.com to learn more. And then join us next week when we'll be talking with Kelsey Osgood about high-demand religion and how scary we find it, and with King Ho-Lung about how we can dare to make vows at all, given Jesus' apparent blanket prohibition on it.